I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is the artist Ian Falconer. He's the author and illustrator of the Olivia children's book series about a pig inspired by his niece, also named Olivia. The first Olivia, published in 2000, won the Caldecott Award, among other accolades. Ian is a set and costume designer for opera and dance, and he's created numerous covers for The New Yorker magazine since 1996. Welcome. Thank you. Could you describe what your home looks like in New York City, in the West Village? Uh, Did you ever read... Which is the book? Is it... Our mutual friend, it's the one with Jarndyce and Jarndyce, and there's a, a, the rag and bone man shop with all this, just everything is stacked to the ceilings, books piled up you know, four feet high. It's a mess. It's a complete mess. And I work in there and, and, and live in there and entertain in there. <laughs> it's, um, it's, a, it's, a mess. it's a wonderful uh, 1950s. I think they were built as kind of bachelor pads in the 50s. Uh, very, very streamlined. It's a staircase that comes down with a wraparound balustrade. But it's all buried now. It's very clean lines, but it's all completely buried. I don't, I don't know what this is. What you, it's like living in a boat in New York. I have to have paper and paints and uh, a lot of materials and uh, a lot of reference books. And I have tons of music and tons of CDs, DVDs. And when you say that you also entertain in there, do you feel the inclination to clean up before your guests come? What kind of entertaining do you do in not, there? Not much anymore. But I used to actually have. I, have a grand piano in the living room, and I, I used to have concerts. Friends would come over and perform, and then we'd invite maybe 30, 40, 50 people. There's actually no room to do that anymore. The neighbors complain, too. You worked on Olivia in your bedroom on an easel, uh, and there's a quote you once you once said. Yes, I had I had a one room studio apartment at that point, so the, the, there was nothing but the bed. Yeah, and you you said at one point I nearly had a nervous breakdown. I'd go to bed staring at the work, then wake up with it. Yes, <laughs> you need a lot of floor space. People are always saying, "Why don't you get a dog? Uh, paper, floor, dog? No, 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 no." What is your ideal workspace? Ideally, I would like to have a whole townhouse where I could have office space in the basement and then two floors to live on and two floors to work on mm. and separate space for doing sculpture and stuff like that mm. and, and, and theater design which is really messy and um, other space for painting and drawing so somehow I think you might fill that space with I would too. I would I think it, I you know. what is your work habit are you working during the day yeah, I, I, work, I work tend to work a lot at night start about five in the evening and then work till four in the morning or something. It's, it's the only time the phone doesn't ring. It's quiet. What time did you wake up this morning? Uh, 9.30. Uh, well, I didn't get to sleep until 7, so. Uh, until 7 a.m. <laughs> so you. I have a trouble getting to sleep when I know I have to do something the next day. Yes. Like get on a plane or go to the dentist or mm-hmm. be interviewed on... At least it's not live. And do you find that the, the the public part of your work like a distraction? Oh, absolutely! I find it an absolute pain in pain in the pain in the neck. Very distracting. Yeah, I can't do anything else. Well, they were really smart. Nobody told me about it. Nobody reminded me about this until last night. So uh, oh. <laughs> uh, I didn't have three days to go <laughs> sweat. <laughs> 
I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Ian Falconer, the creator of the children's book series Olivia about a precocious pig. You are an artist in various mediums. Uh, you you do costume and set design. You've illustrated, been the author and illustrator for Olivia. You create New Yorker magazine covers. When you were younger and you had aspirations to be an artist, did you have a vision of you know one of those vehicles for expression? your art? I always liked doing lots of different things. My, my father was a wonderful amateur carpenter. He could build anything, shelves, uh, cabinets, cabinetry. He was an architect, uh, and he had a great shop, which he let me play in all the time. So I learned very early how to make things. Uh, and I don't know what my mother must have thought. I mean, a six-year-old kid using a radial arm saw is a little terrifying. Drill presses and a lathe. We had a lathe. It could turn uh, candlesticks and things. Really dangerous. Essentially, you know, we, we say, oh, he does theater and uh, draws and paints, but essentially that's much the same th- thing. Uh, it all involves drawing. You grew up in Richfield, Connecticut, right? Ridgewood, no, I was, was born it? in Richfield, but I was, I was actually moved from there when I was about four. We moved to an island in, off the coast of Connecticut in Long Island Sound, just half a mile offshore. It was absolutely idyllic, very beautiful. It's called Tavern Island. It's just our house. It was one, one house. And how did your family uh, come to live on an island, and how did you end up being the only family on that island, or the only house on that island? <laughs> it, was an, it was an old house. It's a turn-of-the-century house, and uh, we'd always sailed around it, and my, and my parents saw it came, up, it came up for sale. It used to be owned by Billy Rose, the great Broadway impresario, mm-hmm. and it was very silly. It had Italian sculptures of muses and putti, little babies and things all over it, and peacocks and a huge amount of animals. We had a huge amount of animals, which may be why I'm so good at anthropomorphizing my pig. We had at one point 18 peacocks, uh, four guinea fowl, ringneck pheasants, golden pheasants, uh, birds, and because we'd feed them we also got all the neighborhood ducks and geese that would come and just plop themselves on the lawn. And then there were all the, the, the abandoned ducklings that got, we got re-raised. And there was, at one point, my sister had found five ducklings that were no, with no mother. And they printed on her and would follow her around in a little train like ducklings do. And it was so adorable. We had this uh, circle of chicken wire that we put in, in the, on the beach in the, in the water so they could swim without escaping and be protected from other creatures. And one of them got caught, its head got caught, and the tide was coming in, and it was just, it was not not breathing, and I I held its bill closed, and I gave it mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, and it lived. <laughs> and my sister thought I was a hero from then on. <laughs> it's It sounds idyllic and great material for your work. Did your parents make a conscious decision to give you, uh, you know, this eclectic way of life, or was it just, of course, this is what we're going to do, is have six, 18 peacocks? Well, they were there on the island when we when we got it. You grew up there with your two sisters, Tonya and Victoria, as well as your parents. Your father was a, a carpenter and architect. And what did your mother do? Uh, she actually taught art sometimes, and um, she uh, ran a sailing school. And 
We're always involved with boats, so that's, I suppose, why we ended up on an island. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Ian Falconer, the creator of the children's book series, Olivia, about a precocious pig. In addition to creating the book series, he's designed sets and costumes for the New York City Ballet, the San Francisco Opera, the Royal Opera House in London, and the Teatro du Châtelet in Paris. Ian also creates covers for the New Yorker magazine. So fast forward, was there any question that you would do anything else with your life uh, other than make art? Well, my parents didn't like the idea that much because it's hard to make a living as an artist. So I was sent to NYU and I did art history and then flunked out after two years because I didn't, I really didn't want to be an art historian at all. Then I went to Parsons. In New York City? Yeah. Can you talk to me some more about the, the early period when you were at NYU having a difficult moment in your life when you were studying art history and all you wanted to do was make art? Like, what was the, <laughs> what was the 18-year-old Ian Falconer like? Well, I used to. I would still make things, I, even though I wasn't in an art, art school. But I, as my father said... Well, he's majoring in Studio 45, (laughs) (laughs) intentionally getting it wrong. I was a wild 18-year-old, yeah. I got to New York from a boarding school in Massachusetts, believe me. (laughs) All right, so you were majoring in Studio 54. It was really, really fun. It It was a time in New York when the uptown people and the downtown people all mixed together in a different way. And now the downtown people all live in Brooklyn separate. And it was a much more vibrant, wild city than it is now. And it was amazing looking, you know, looking around a room and seeing, well, there's Frank Perdue, and there's Martha Graham, and there's Barbara Streisand, and there's Liza Minnelli, and there's, uh, there's everybody was there. Everybody was doing cocaine at that time, from museum directors, socialites, not just kids. Um, it was everybody passing around little vials at dinner parties and things. Um, no food got eaten. <laughs> Did drugs fuel your creativity even at that no, time? No, no, no. It's a waste of time. Okay, so during this time, after leaving NYU, you went to Parsons Art School in New York City. Yeah, and I met a lot of people in the art world and through one of them, uh, Henry Geldzoller, who used to be the Commissioner of Cultural, uh, Cultural Affairs, I met uh, David Hockney. He said he offered me work out in Los Angeles, and they have a sister school, Parsons Otis Art Institute in Los Angeles. So I tra- transferred out there and worked for him for about 13 years. Now, David Hockney, the artist, the artist just was also he was creating sets. He was doing yeah for for theater and opera in Los Angeles. Yes, that's what I was working with him on. So I, I got really good training through that Berated. in the studio and in the theater. And you collaborated with David professionally, and you also were his boyfriend for a few years. Is that, mm-hmm. is that right? At the beginning, yeah. How long were you partners as well? Oh, I don't know. Does it ever really end? <laughs> <laughs> I'm still in touch with him all the time, and I love him dearly. Describe that experience for me of creating and set designing. Uh, well, music has always been very important to me. So working on the operas and the ballet was ballet not so much but the the opera is thrilling learning from david he would always say if you're stuck for an idea listen to the music love listen to the music and he always take it take it back to the music uh, which a lot of designers don't 
would you listen to the music as you were designing to give you inspiration? Can mm-hmm. you over and over again every every available recording we could find of, of of the thing we would play? What's an example of one of the projects you worked on with him? Uh, just to uh, Tristan and Isolde, mm-hmm. uh, Turandot, which is still in circulation, plays a lot. Uh, Die Frau in a Schatten, which is a Strauss opera. So David was a you know, real mentor. What are some things that he taught you, whether it's about you know the world of art or Well, he's very work. passionate about art, so yes, I learned a lot about painting, and but Technically, he, you know, as, as he says, it's that an art school can't teach you art. It can only teach you how to use a pencil and a, and a brush and, and oil paints. and It can only teach you techniques, really. It's up to you to make the art. He draws constantly, all the time. They're always interesting, and he's tireless. In a way, creating sets for opera or ballet is very three-dimensional, and a lot of your work, though, has also been you know, on the page. Mm-hmm. How do you think about that? I tend to do drop painted drop sets, so they're they're layers of illusionistic painting and not not built sets. One reason is because when you build a set, you tend to be stuck with that set. Whereas when you have drop sets, you can you can change it instantly, and you can have many 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 different uh, scene changes, uh, which people love. And in <laughs> a way, it's more of connective tissue to the books and the magazines because it's a little more two dimensional mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. But you can get some great three dimensional illusions that way. Uh, forcing perspective and all that. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is the artist Ian Falconer. We'll hear more from Ian coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is the artist Ian Falconer. He's the author and illustrator of the Olivia children's book series about a pig inspired by his niece, also named Olivia. The first Olivia, published in 2000, won the Caldecott Award, among other accolades. Ian is a set and costume designer for opera and dance, and he's created numerous covers for The New Yorker magazine since 1996. So moving forward from your life in Los Angeles, designing sets with David Hockney to New York, where you created Olivia in your Greenwich Village apartment, what was the impetus for moving back to New York City? My lease was up in Los Angeles, and I thought, do I want to move to another house here? or do I, I, I was actually co- only going to spend maybe six months back in New York. My family's all here, so I thought it'd be nice, and I ended up staying. Were you feeling, like, satisfied professionally, or were you feeling like, you know, I have a book in me, or uh, what was your... <laughs> I was actually a bit at a, uh, at a loss because I had a gallery in Los Angeles, but I didn't have a gallery in New York, and my paintings were not fashionable at that time. What did they look like? I do portraits and landscapes and, and interiors and still lifes. Yeah, having worked with David Hockney all those years, I knew I'd known art dealers for a long time, and they're a funny breed. I remember going to Robert Miller Gallery, I think, and it was his assistant at that point who saw me, and he didn't like my stuff, and so he suggested that I go to another gallery that handled Peter Schlesinger, one of David Hockney's old boyfriends. Mm. And I thought that was the worst put down. <laughs> go to David's David's ex-boyfriend gallery. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't quite sure what to do, and I thought, well, I've got to make some money. So uh, I thought, well, I'll send in some things to the New Yorker magazine, and, and amazingly, they liked my work, which is a dream for an illustrator. Any any illustrator would like like that job. 
Did you have uh, any connections at the New Yorker, or you just pretty much put your 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 material in an envelope, put a stamp on it, and sent it in? I had a friend who knew somebody who knew a, a guy named David Kuhn who used who worked with uh, Tina Brown, who was the former editor. And I I, I came and gave them to him. He didn't look very imp- seem very impressed with them, and I did think he didn't want to get me to get my hopes up or anything, but. Uh, so all, all I can do is show them to the editor and my editor, Francoise Mouly, uh, who is wonderful. I didn't hear anything from them. Uh, and I finally thought, well, I'll just I'll, I'll, I'll write a note and just say, I, I haven't gotten my drawings back. If you have any suggestions, I'd love to hear them. Mm-hmm. And this is my phone number. And the next day she called me up and said, oh, darling, hello. I would do want you to come up and see my, uh, uh, see my office, see what's on the wall. Uh, they didn't use any of the drawings I sent them, but, uh, but I... It took me almost a year to get a, my first cover, but I, uh, it did support me. They were very generous at that time. They used to buy in things even if they didn't use them. And it was while I was doing that, Olivia was born, and she was the first kid in the family. Now, this was in 1996, and you were in your mid to late 30s when uh, The New Yorker picked you up. What was the first cover that you did for The New Yorker? It was 4th of July, and it was a, an image of the the arm of the Statue of Liberty and she's holding a sparkler instead of a torch. Not the best joke in the world, but it was a ni- nice visual. The New Yorker paid you up front each year so that it mm-hmm. freed you up to not only create for The New Yorker, but to work on various other projects, including yes. including Olivia. And theater, yeah. And I originally I started pay- doing Olivia so I would have more time to paint. But as I've lived in New York every year, it's gotten so much more expensive over the last 15 years that I kept having to do <laughs> do more books. Right. Um, I was trying to buy a studio at one point, and then the housing market all fell apart. So eventually, I, th- I, th- I think the, n- the next book might be called Olivia Pays the Rent. <laughs> <laughs> the inspiration for Olivia, the book series, is your niece, Olivia Crane, mm-hmm. who lives in Connecticut. When did you first think to create a gift for your niece? Because it was a gift initially, right? Yes. I started drawing this little character and putting it together, and uh, I realized that it was actually pretty good, really kind of funny. The character was very funny, and uh, I took it into William Morris Agency. They had a children's book department. The woman there said, "Uh, I like it. I like the drawings, but it's it's not an Eloise yet. It's not an Eloise. And uh, okay, she said, "Well, we'll, we'll hook you up with another. Uh, it's your first time author. You'll never get published without. Uh, I'll put you together with an st- established author." And a, mm. no, I don't want it to be illustrated by Ian Falcon. I've created this character, so I took it home and put it away. And then I got a call from somebody at uh, Simon and Schuster, from Ann Schwartz, who'd seen my New Yorker stuff, and said, "Would you like to illustrate a children's book?" And I said. <laughs> Here you go. I brought her the illustration. She loved it. Absolutely loved it. That was it. Describe to me how you felt when you got that call. These are momentous pivot points in your life, whether it was the New Yorker uh, saying, <laughs> yeah, come on in, or Anne saying, I love the work. Like, well, very, I get very, very, very shy about showing my work. So I remember going up there t- absolutely terrified. I didn't, I, I, not terrified, but shaky and, and nervous. And Anne said, we were actually really worried about you when we first <laughs> we thought, who is this creature that we've <laughs> that we're getting involved with here? Uh, you mean when they saw you for the first time yeah. in person? Why? How would you describe what you're like in person? I tend to get 
sort of shaky and jittery, uh, nervous, very nervous. Um, making me nervous right now. Just talking about it is making me nervous. It was, it was great, and, and I, but I didn't have that high hopes for it, even when they said yes, because thousands of children's books come out every year, and they, many of them just go under the radar. They don't uh, get noticed. They were terrific, Simon and Schuster. They put a lot of uh, advertising behind it, and it became very popular. And the Caldecott, of course, that was very funny because they called me at, I think, about 8 o'clock in the morning. I was in a deep slumber, and they said, guess what? You've won the Caldecott medal. And I was like, oh, great. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I, I don't think it even really occurred to me what the Caldecott was and how important it was. Um, I soon found out when my some of my children's book writing friends <laughs> started steaming about it. <laughs> I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Ian Falconer, the creator of the children's book series Olivia, about a precocious pig. How would you describe who Olivia is? What's her personality? She's confident, very confident. Uh, Seems to know what she wants. She's a contrarian, so just when you think you know what she's going to do next, she'll surprise you by doing the opposite. She wants to do everything herself. She wants to make everything herself. She has an strong imagination. You mentioned that you had a lot of animals around the house, which is why you might be good at anthropomorphizing in in your work. Did you ever think Olivia, the pig, might be a different animal? How did pig come to mind? Olivia has has this very turned-up little nose. And when she was a little kid, you know little kids, their heads are always a little bit too big for their bodies, and they just, she just looked like a little piglet. Pigs are also very intelligent. Considering they only have trotters, apparently they can get into any cabinet or any anything. In, uh, they're uh, very clever. The palette for Olivia is is spare. There's sort of an economy in mm-hmm. the in the colors that you use. Is, is I a think. Lot of well, first work? of all, I think I think I think too much color, too much color, too much detail, too much stuff distracts from the story. I think that the, the simplicity of the way Olivia is drawn allows you to see really concentrate on her facial expressions which I work very hard on her facial expressions to get it the uh, it's, it's just a tiny little dot for the eye but you have to get it right and you end up erasing it over and over and over again and just just to get the right surprise or whatever the whatever the look is on her face I have a sort of technique that I developed for the, the these books people always think, think think that they're airbrushed but they're not I get those women's makeup tools, you know, those cotton balls and cotton swabs and things to do the shadowing, to give this delicate, soft shadowing, and then outline it with charcoal. And you paint on the gouache, and then you can shade the gouache with the charcoal as well to get that three-dimensional quality. Uh, And then the shadow underneath her feet so that she seems to stand on a plane on the floor. You use the same economy, not just in the palette, but in the language. The words are so simpatico with the art. I found when I'm working on other, illustrating things for other people that I don't don't have that same feeling of the organic whole of, of doing the books myself and writing them. And when you're working on the books at the, at the, with the editor at the stage where you've got all the drawings and you're working with a text, you'll keep changing the text and altering uh, things, which if you're with an, an author, so, so, uh, uh, sometimes they never even meet these authors and illustrators, and you wonder, what the hell? Collaborate. Yeah. A lot of people have trouble collaborating. That's the great thing about theaters. You learn how to collaborate with other people. You have to work with them. Or... <coughs> 
or else. Who are some children's authors or illustrators whom you're particularly fond of or whom you think about as, as reference points for you? I, I love Maurice Sendak, of course. He's truly a giant. His uh, book, and oddly enough, a lot of people don't like it that, as much as his other books, but uh, is Higgledy-Piggledy-Pop, if you've ever read it. It, it. First of all, it's all in black and white. It's all, I think, pencil or charcoal, graphite or charcoal, I'm not sure. And it's a wonderfully dark tale for children, surreal dark tale for mm. children. Mm-hmm. Dr. Seuss, absolutely. And again, those, those old two-color printing processes that they used to use, a lot of the early Dr. Seuss books, it's only one color and, and black and white because it was cheaper. That was the, they didn't have, it was very expensive to do a four-color lithograph at that time. Mm-hmm. It's not now. In fact, Olivia's black and white drawings are all done in four-color, uh, five-color, I think it is. So that to get the richness in the charcoal, because charcoal has a lovely warmth to it. Does the stripe of her sweater at all reference the stripe of the cat in the hat, the cat's hat? No. No. It's, first of all, stripes delineate the shape of the body wonderfully. Uh, they, they, show, they, they show bulges and all the, all the curves and shapes in the body. But I always like stripes, whether they're fishermen's stripes, fishermen's shirts, and things like that. We talk about David Hockney as being an important figure in, in your life. What other artists have had an impact on you? Not many um, living artists that I can think of right now. Certainly, I've been influenced by the, the large figures of the 20th century, Picasso and Matisse. And well, I don't know how you could not be influenced by Picasso. And he had this extraordinary facility from a very early age, which allowed him to do anything pretty much anything he wanted. He could paint like a 50-year-old man when he was 10. His father was a painter and painted uh, little pictures for tourists of pigeons, uh, Mm -hmm. doves. And Picasso, I don't know, three years old or something, copied one of his his father's paintings and did it it so well that his father just put down his brushes and said, you do it now. (laughs) You mentioned Picasso and and Matisse, I think of as an explosion of color. Uh, No, very controlled, though. It's very hard to use color, and he does it beautifully. So does Hockney. Even though Olivia is not um, soaked in color? Uh, it did... reads as color, though. It, it, it doesn't read as, to me, it doesn't read as a black and white book. The first book does have just one color. The second book has a cup, like red and pink. And the third book has green and red. But it's tightly controlled. There's also an, ap- an appeal uh, for adults in Olivia, um, and some say that it was an instant success because parents liked Olivia. For instance, there's references to Mir- Maria Callas and, of course, Degas and Jackson Pollock in the first Olivia, uh, and later Eleanor Roosevelt. And to what extent are you kind of winking at parents uh, concurrently while you're also trying to appeal to the little people? There are a couple things. What is the Parents frequently have to read these books over and over and over again because kids love repetition. They love being able to anticipate. They know what's coming next. Um, The other thing is I think when the child and the parent are bonding together reading, it really helps if the parent laughs because children will laugh at what their parents will. And they're also trying to figure out what their parents are laughing at. I, I think it helps. You created this initially as a gift for your niece, Olivia, and obviously it's become much larger than that. To what extent has your family gotten involved in this? My, my niece, it's, it's very funny, Olivia never, she just took it all, I guess as children do, they, she just took it all in stride. Of course, I'm, uh, there's a book about me. <laughs> she, used to, she used to autograph them for kids at school. <laughs> in fact, I was doing a book signing once when she was 
the first book because she was very little. And she came up and just without being asked, sat down next to me and started just signing in a big, slow, slow, O, L, I. And there are people lined up for, you know, 300 people deep back there waiting and waiting. And Olivia signs <laughs> It's very cute. I could see for other families who may not want to have a public presence, you know, you have you have made them public uh, in a way that maybe they might not have expected. But I don't think many people outside of her school or her right. friend circle know, know that she's that Olivia. Town library, maybe. <laughs> I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Ian Falconer, the creator of the children's book series, Olivia, About a Pig. The series exists in almost 30 languages, and Olivia debuted in 2009 on Nickelodeon as a TV series. Ian has also designed sets and costumes for various opera and ballet companies, and he's worked in collaboration with the SAS David Sedaris on a stage version of Santa Land Diaries, among other projects. I want to talk about Tom Ford for, for a minute. He's a fashion designer, and he's also the director of the movie A Single Man by Isherwood. You were partners with Tom Ford. Yeah, we met in at NYU. We were in the same class at NYU. Uh, one of the reasons I bring him up is in his movie, uh, the lead character is a gentleman, George. And the last name, George's last name in the movie is Falconer. You know, you being somebody kind of private have been the object. You've been on now on the other side, uh, in a way, by <laughs> being George Falconer. Uh, you are Falconer. Yes, there's no last name in the book. Uh, so he, had to, he needed to invent one for the screen and he Oh, that was very sweet of him. Very, very sweet of him. What role did he play in, in your life? I assume, are you still friends? And Yes. You both obviously met each other at a very um, formative stage, both very young at NYU. How do you think you have influenced each other's lives or careers, if at all? Um, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure we have that much. He's, he's been a wonderful friend, but we're very different people. You're both in the milieu of meeting other artists and... But he's always immaculate and put together, and his house is absolutely pristine, clean, crisp. And I'm a slob and a messy. He's very social. I'm not. Cares what he looks like. I don't. I have six white Brooks Brothers shirts and six pairs of blue jeans, and that's that's makes it so much easier. <laughs> Incidentally, uh, there are a number of children's books created by single men who don't have children. Maurice <laughs> Sandek comes to mind. Uh, yes. You know, Where the Wild Things Are. Do you think it's just coincidence? Or, you know, talk to me about that. You don't have children. No. Uh, I really, I don't, I don't know. That's an odd, that is an odd thing. I hadn't thought of that. I think possibly that single <laughs> middle-aged men have never grown up themselves and maintain a kind of attachment to childhood that other people don't may not have when they when they've married and are saddled with children and they also may not have time to, to the luxury of time to sit and think and draw and diddle and doodle I used to have a macrobiotic teacher in California during one of my mac, you know one of my California health things and uh, she she always said that gay men have ne- have have made some subconscious decision not to take responsibility <gasps> and i was i bristle at that but more, and more i think maybe she's a little bit right there <gasps> they tend to postpone adolescence into their 50s <laughs> <laughs> 
You mentioned uh, macrobiotics. Are you well, focused on eating well? And I try, but it's not that easy in New York City. Maybe it's my neighborhood. The West Village. The West Village um, tends to be either high end or pizza. Ernest Hemingway says he talks about doing the best work on an empty stomach. Like, yeah, I often don't eat until dinner. It keeps you sharper. Yeah, it does. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. My guest has been the artist Ian Falconer. Coming up, we'll meet Elizabeth Cutler and Julie Rice, co-founders of Soul Cycle, a company that offers indoor cycling classes. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. Mm-hmm.